Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Jody Hilton, an independent photojournalist based in Boston. In my career, I focused on humanitarian stories, especially related to war, natural disasters, and refugees. I've worked in numerous countries, including a trip to Ukraine in 2016. This brings me to introduce our very special guest. Jakub Parosinski is a Polish-Australian journalist and media professional with ties to Ukraine. Among his numerous accomplishments, he helped found the Kiev Independent and the Fix. He's also one of the people behind a comprehensive fundraising campaign to help Ukrainian journalists at this moment. As we speak on March 9, 2022, the Russian invasion into Ukraine is into its second week, and already Russia has mounted a fierce attack on Ukrainian cities and towns. Civilians are in the crosshairs. Many civilians are without power, heat, and water. Already 2 million people have fled the country in less than two weeks. Thousands of casualties are being reported, including at a maternity hospital that was attacked in Mariupol. As a note, today, on March 19th, as this interview is being prepared for airing, the crisis has escalated further. Over 3 million Ukrainians have now fled their country, numbers Europe hasn't experienced since World War II. Across Ukraine, Russian forces have turned to indiscriminately bombing urban centers and deliberately targeting civilians, including locations sheltering women, children, and the elderly. This past week's bombing of a theater in Mariupol, where thousands were sheltering, is one of the most egregious examples of Russia's brutality. As survivors are being pulled from the wreckage, an unknown number, including many children, have been killed there. Mariupol and other cities under siege report that food, water, and medical supplies are running out while escape routes are blocked. Ukrainian cities are being subjected to intense, indiscriminate shelling in a grim reminder of the way that Russian and Syrian forces decimated the Syrian cities of Aleppo, Hama, and Homs over the past years. Ending our update and returning to our interview, we're going to be talking about the war and humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and about the work of Ukrainian journalists. We also want to discuss the reality of journalism and crisis reporting in the age of artificial intelligence. Welcome, Yakub. You're speaking to us from London, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Thank you so much, Jody. A real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I really hope that your family and your loved ones are okay during this terrifying and worrisome time. Thank you so much. Most of the family is luckily out of harm's way, but we do have some members, uh, both family and team members, still in Ukraine, and obviously that's constant concern. But uh, yes, so far everyone is okay. Could you start by introducing yourself and sharing your background with our members? Absolutely. So... My background has been in mostly in journalism and media management. I actually came to Ukraine first in 2009. I worked as a journalist in a couple of places, but most of all the uh, Kiev Post, which is the spiritual predecessor of the Kiev Independent. 
I uh, ended up being the chief editor of the Kiev Post for a while and then went on to become the CEO uh, position that I held during the Maidan, uh, Euromaidan revolution in 2013 and 2014, as well as at the beginning of the Donbass war in, uh, in 2014. Since then, I've been working in media management, media consulting, media education, uh, writing about media, so all kinds of positions. And a lot of the people that I work with are in Ukraine, from Ukraine, and uh, that's, that has remained a big part of my life ever since. So before we talk about the efforts that you've put together to help Ukrainian journalists, is there anything that you'd like to say in order to frame this conversation today? Well, I guess the, the thing that I would say is that it's almost unthinkable these days to have such a stark juxtaposition of, of good and evil. It's, it's common for journalists to understand that, look, every story has a bit of gray in it. You need to get both sides. You know, I spent many years reporting on crime, corruption, whatnot across Eastern Europe, and almost every story is more complicated than it seems. I think this is the exception. On the one hand, we have an absolutely barbaric, horrific invasion, shelling of citizens, direct targeting, purposeful targeting of schools and kindergartens, children dying. Um, I mean, the sort of what is happening, what is being done by the Russian army in Ukraine is absolutely atrocious. And then on the other hand, I think the both the heroism with which Ukrainians are fighting back, as well as the almost sort of absolute support in terms of, you know, coming from the rest of the world, both direct support, moral support, standing up, the sanctions, the speed with which they've reacted. It's rare to have a story that is so stark in contrast. And there would be so many things to be happy about, to be honest, when we look at how people are standing up against this, if it all wasn't all so sad in terms of the price that lots of ordinary citizens of Ukraine are paying for um, what I would say is the freedom, not just of Ukraine, but of Europe and in many ways of the world. So can you talk a little bit more about the fundraising you're doing at this moment? What is it that journalists need most of all? And what is it that we as outsiders can do to help? So there's a lot of things actually happening in parallel right now. And um, we're working with a lot of organizations on the ground internationally, to try to mobilize that. I think there's a lot of things that are short-term. You know, reporters who are on the ground, people who are on the ground need protective gear. They need various medical supplies. You know, just today we, um, or yesterday, delivered so-called emergency bandages uh, that are used for gunshot wounds, uh, tourniquets, and things like that. So there's a lot of immediate needs, especially right now, because you know, Kiev seems to be the clear goal of the Russian forces and sort of encircling Kiev and sort of laying siege and taking over the city seems to be their target. So right now, you know, the absolute priority is to get as many supplies into the city before it becomes encircled. But there's also a lot of things that are happening in the mid and the longer term. And that's also something that we're keeping an eye on. You know, how do you make sure that amidst such a absolutely devastating humanitarian crisis, we don't also lose um, pieces of the fabric of Ukrainian society. I mean, for me and, and you know, all of the, the people that we're working with, the priority is media, just because that's, that's where we work. But look, I mean, taking a slight step back, 
Russia has attempted several times over the past 100 years, just to, to sort of frame it a, a little bit, to destroy Ukraine as a nation, as a culture, as a society. And we can't let that happen again. And um, sort of the things that we're looking at now in terms of support is how do you make sure that the media that are keeping the nation together, how do we ensure that they are alive and working, you know, in three months' time, in six months' time, amidst the market and a country that is absolutely devastated. Um, so we're balancing short-term and long-term concerns at the moment. But uh, yeah, certainly help is needed on both fronts. Can you tell me a bit more about the reporting that is coming out of Ukraine that is produced by Ukrainians? For example, what is the Kyiv Independent reporting on? So I think... I would actually look a little bit broader than just the Kyiv Independent. I think the Kyiv Independent is doing fantastic news in terms of covering the breaking stories as well as explaining the story of what is happening in the country to an international audience. But I think uh, if we zoom out a little bit and look at, you know, the Ukrainian media space versus the international media, which is also important, like, look, having foreign correspondents on the ground is important. And there's a lot of people doing great work. But I think what is what is really important is that local journalists are able to tell the the to give the nuance, the context, the human side of the stories, they actually know these places, they know the people that are that are suffering from uh, from the invasion, and they are able to convey a story that is several times deeper than what foreign correspondents, even the best ones, are able to do. And I think the two actually work together in a sort of symbiosis. You know, the best foreign correspondents that I've had the pleasure to work alongside with, and there have been a few, um, you know, they they follow local media, they learn as much as they can about the local situation. They try to include that in their reporting because they do need to reach global audiences. They do need to, they do need to tell the story in a different way. But, you know, not losing the local perspective is really important. And then let's also be honest. I mean, just in terms of the facts, local journalism tends to be a lot more rigorous. You know, if you got the the name of the town wrong and you're a correspondent of one of the big international networks, I mean, chances are that no one is going to really pay attention for very long. Um, Local journalism doesn't have that sort of leeway. They need to they need to really sort of get everything right. They need to make sure that the story is accurate. And at the end of the day, that also makes for better international reporting. So I think both work together well. I agree with you on that. But I also think that there may be things that the um, international correspondents are, are missing. I mean, if I'm relying on sources like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian, what is it that I am not, not understanding about the big picture, in your opinion? So... Let me put it this way. If you're reading the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Guardian, you're probably seeing a lot of the important stories, but they might not be registering because they will be referenced. They will sort of just appear on the side of things. You know, what you would get if you're following the local news is that those stories will not just be a reference. They would be a whole story in themselves. Um, Over the last couple of days, I've seen a couple of materials about you know, what is it that actually the mothers, wives, um, etc. of the Russian soldiers are going through um, with recordings um, from, uh, you, you know, the hotline that Ukraine 
Ukraine's government put up so that people from Russia could contact them and try to find out what's happening with their loved ones. So you might have seen, you've probably seen that story in the international news, but you haven't sort of seen the deep dives, looking at, you know, individuals, the individual interviews, the discussions, the sort of commentary from relatives that are in Russia, how they're seeing it, right? So I think you're missing a lot of, um, you'd be missing a lot of the depth behind it, as well as, uh, I would say, the human side of other stories, you know. So right now in, in Ukraine, of course, we see the bombings, of course, we see the the fighting and, you know, the explosions and all of that. But life goes on for a lot of people. You know, the um, there's maternity wards that are continuing to operate, you know, whilst being shelled. I mean, that's the kind of reporting that I'm seeing on, on a lot of the local stories that maybe aren't quite as, you know, it might be a 30 second feature on an, on an international network, but you won't actually sort of see what is happening and how the people are living. You know, that's, that's actually a story that's quite close to my heart. Uh, one of my, um, or actually the, the partner in, in, uh, our media consultancy, his, um, had a daughter, you know, the day before the invasion. And honestly, the story that he went through trying to get out with a wife who, who just gave birth, basically a three day old amidst Kiev that is being bombed and, you know, 16 hour roads from one city to another. You know, that's the kind of story that you would see in the local papers or sort of local websites, but not so much in the in the international ones. Right. A quick question, just to jump in here. This is Brent. Operationally, what people's benefit from provided by local media, you know, in terms of, I guess, where the front line is and how to get out or but what do people need on the ground information wise from journalists? Oh, yeah. Well, that's obviously a big part of it as well. So when we look at what the local media are doing, they're pro providing very timely information about air raids, what transport is still working, when there will be evacuation transports from specific cities, you know, what places to go to. So there's a lot of information that is very directly linked to their safety. Just to follow up on that. What I've heard from cities under siege, especially from places like Mariupol, is that there is very little electricity, let alone heat and water, and there's shortages of food and all of that. If it's hard to get electricity, how do people actually access information? Is there internet? How do things look on the ground? So far, what we're seeing is that in most parts, internet is still working. Ukraine's digital infrastructure is surprisingly resilient. It's actually quite impressive to see the banking system is still working. Internet is working in most places. It's really the physical side of things that is the most challenging. So, you know, you can, you can make up for a patchy connection with a better connection in a couple of hours. You can't necessarily do the same thing with a road that's been blown to bits or a bridge that is no longer there. Um, I think electricity is a very big problem. To be honest, one of the, most worrying things or, or sort of the thing that, that isn't necessarily quite as covered is the problem with water. So the moment that water goes and, you know, if you're locked inside, then there really isn't much that can be done with that. And I mean, there's, there's really terrible stories of people dying of dehydration, including uh, mothers with young children. And it's just, yeah, it's just uh, horrific. Yeah, it's a lot. Well, I want to just kind of shift a little bit over to what is going on in terms of uh, 
what don't we know about how the Russian media works and what can be done to get Russian citizens a more accurate version of what's going on in your opinion? So, so this is tricky. I think splitting the question into two parts. So one is, is misinformation that is generated by Russia and spread worldwide. And the other one is the one for internal consumption. When we look at the misinformation that is spread worldwide, I think there we've seen four years of progress in two weeks. The key propaganda channels have been banned. There is a, uh, I would say, a social and a political consensus to not, not take it anymore. Like for for years now across Europe, there has been, I would say, systemic Russian disinformation campaigns. And what's important to know is that it's not just disinformation. It's not um, often when I look at the debate in the U.S., it's framed as, you know, uh, disinformation or, or sort of propaganda or trying to convince somebody is, is framed as you have, you know, point of view A, and I want to convince you about point of view B. Russian disinformation works a little bit differently. The goal is not so much to convince you about an alternative opinion. It aims to convince you that nothing really matters, nothing is true, and everything is a manipulation from somebody. So it's not so much that, you know, A is wrong and B is correct. It's that you can't trust A and you can't trust B, and at the end of the day, everyone is lying to you. And a lot of that was tolerated for a long time because it's, it's, it's difficult to dismantle, right? If somebody is telling you you need to be skeptical, you need to do your own research, you know, you can't trust the figures of authority. Um, well, that's, you know, part of that is, is just journalism, right? Like there, there is an element of skepticism and challenging the official perspective in journalism that is, that is just it's part of the job. But I think Russian propaganda and Russian disinformation was much more pernicious. It was tolerated for a while by the various European countries, um, both on a social and political level. That's no longer the case. Now, when we look at the situation within Russia, we're back in the dark ages. I mean, the level of censorship is now is, is virtually complete. All the free media have been dismantled or muzzled to an extreme level. Social media no longer exists. So what do you have left? And in this respect, it's quite interesting to compare. Because, so, you know, I've done a bit of work in across the region, let's say. And if you look at Belarus, well, in Belarus, you can still basically more or less get information via Telegram or, you know, via VPN or things like that. It's an extremely autocratic state. It controls, you know, people to the same extent, but it doesn't have the same technological capabilities as Russia. Russia is both autocratic and extremely tech savvy, It's for the time being, at least. So they're able to really muzzle the flow of information into the country. And I think, you know, honestly, since we're back in the days of the Soviet Union, we're probably in the days of uh, back in the days of Samizdat, uh, the, the sort of the self-publishing, the small sort of written notes that are passed along. And, you know, we're just going to see digital versions of that. And there are efforts being made. There's, you know, various hotlines where people can just sort of dial in, call a random number from Russia and tell them what's happening. You know, there's other efforts that are being underway, that are being put in place. I don't necessarily want to go into the details of some of them because they're, they still haven't really been uncovered. But, um, you know, right now we're looking for any way to, to sort of get information into Russia. 
And the problem is that it's, it's become a very isolated, very autarkic state. Yeah. What are some of the technologies that are behind passing digital notes that you're aware of? So, again, I don't want to go into too much detail on some of them because they're, they're still in a very experimental phase. But sort of to summarize it a little bit, like, think about it this way. If you're able to put a message up in a way that is geolocated, that, that it sort of that it ends up showing up in some specific part of the world that is not a media, that is not something else, and you can put information there, that's something that is interesting. To give you one example that I think has been in the press, and so it's not too sensitive, you know, writing a review on Google for the time being, I think it still works. Sorry, I haven't checked it. Maybe it's down already. Um, who knows? Russia is closing down one thing after another. But if you can write a Google review on a restaurant and put information into that, that's a form of passing a digital note. And the level of creativity that we're seeing is, is really quite amazing. What effect it will have, that's anyone's guess. Anyone who would have been considered a Russian liberal and in the in the sort of European sense of the term, not the American one, so let's say pro-democratic, they're either on their way out already, they all or they're you know they made it out of Russia, or they're trying any way to get out. And how many people will be left? How brainwashed will they be by Russian state propaganda? That's anyone's guess. It's it's an extremely challenging situation, and, and honestly, I don't think anyone has a good answer um, at the moment. Right. So as a journalist myself, I have been following news about journalists in the line of fire, targeted by Russian forces specifically. Many journalists have already been killed and others injured. But also, there are other threats to their security like digital surveillance and cyber attacks. What do you have to say about how journalists can protect themselves from digital threats? And how could we help in those kind of situations? So maybe to start with the... Um with the easier ones. So right now there is a, there are quite a few people that are working on sort of the cybersecurity part because journalists are absolutely being targeted. Media websites are being targeted. Just as part of our efforts, I think we've sort of helped about 15, maybe a bit more media connect with various IT companies that would help them. Both simple things like, you know, migration out of Ukraine in terms of uh, or, you know, debugging and things like that, but also areas work that's related to cybersecurity. This isn't necessarily new. There's people who are specialized in the field. They're working um, methodically, systematically with journalists in terms of sharing best practices. How do you protect yourself? At this point, I would say for a journalist, you know, paying attention to cybersecurity is almost like hygiene, right? You need to, there's a certain amount of um, ritual and, you know, standard practices that you just have to follow. And then if you have a specific case and specific types of attacks, then, then probably you need some kind of more involved support. In terms of the, the situation on the ground physically, are journalists being targeted by Russian forces? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. We've seen it already, you know, multiple times across the, the war. Are they also being targeted just because they're civilians? Absolutely. There is no discrimination happening now um, in the sense of trying to keep this a military versus military conflict. This is all-out war. 
anyone who is not part of the invading forces is being targeted. And journalists, in many ways, because they stand out, because they go to the more dangerous places, because they're, you know, they ask the questions and they're visible, they are so much more vulnerable to any kind of attacks. And there have been multiple videos of uh, shooting at journalists, uh, journalists being targeted, harassed, and all of that. So, you know, what can we do? Um, as many supplies as possible. Right now, there is a huge challenge in terms of sourcing supplies and getting them into Ukraine. That's something that I've been dealing with for the past week now. We have a team of seven people working just on this topic of, and it's for very limited supplies, to be honest. It's extremely difficult. You have to source them internationally. Everyone is trying to buy them. Basically, if you wanted a bulletproof vest for your nightclub security, you know, anywhere in Europe, you're out of luck. Everything is sold out for the next month. Like, you're not getting anything. So there's a big challenge in terms of securing that because obviously it's not just journalists. This is really a war that is being fought by the Ukrainian nation. The amount of volunteers that have shown up, returned to Ukraine, have been mobilized inside the country, and they don't have all the equipment either. So there's a lot of people who are trying to source equipment specifically for them. That's something that I think everyone supports, that they are as well equipped to fight Russians as possible, but we also need our journalists to be protected. Um, so, so that's a big challenge, getting that those supplies in. And, you know, it's not just vests. It's really, it's, um, it's, it's med kits, it's walkie-talkies, it's satellite phones, it's, uh, you know, ballistic glasses. It's, um, the list is really endless of things that are really important to protect yourself in, in such an environment. I've been involved in efforts to train journalists in first aid, and one of the things that we have observed generally is that oftentimes the people who need the training the most are the ones who have the hardest time accessing that training and may also lack supplies like um, IFACs, which are individual first aid kits. I wonder if this is also the case for Ukrainian correspondents, because of course Ukraine has been facing Russian aggression for several years now. So I would assume the people who cover these stories have some training or experience. What is your take on that? I think the answer is partially yes. So being a war correspondent is a, it's a pretty niche type of journalism. It tends to be a very expensive type of journalism. So not every outlet can afford to have a war correspondent that is, you know, sometimes, you know, spending, um, half a month's salary in just two or three days for transport or whatever they need because they operate in conditions that are obviously much more challenging than, uh, than, than anything linked to normal sort of non-war journalism. So, yes, those people are experienced. They, I think, are pretty well trained, but there's few of them. Now, when we look at the bulk of Ukrainian journalism, you know, 80% of them, 90% of them, they have, you know, they've maybe visited the eastern part, but they, most of them have probably never been on the front lines. Obviously, it's sort of a finger in the air statistic, but I would say that most of them probably haven't even been, you know, within the, within the areas where the fighting was for the past um, eight years. Because it's, it's been, you know, Ukraine is a big country. It's the size of Texas. And the fighting was limited to a pretty small area, all things considered. 
So for them, obviously, the situation is much more challenging. And yes, getting the right training, making sure that, you know, if you send tourniquets and med kits and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, that they actually know how to use them is is another question. And, um, you know, I think now it's a question of trying to do what we can, sharing tips. The key of independent, I see the journalists uh, exchanging tips and and life hacks, you know, um, literal ones, uh, you know, how do you sort of, what do you do in this situation? What do you do in that situation? Um, they're doing an amazing job in getting smart on the topic very quickly. But uh, yes, obviously, it's something that has taken, I think, most Ukrainian media by surprise, as it has the world. Yeah. Um, I just want to pivot a little bit here and talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. Do you have any specific thoughts about the subject, or um, aside from the digital notes, where do you think artificial intelligence could be of use? So I've mostly seen artificial intelligence applications in journalism on the what I would say is the content production side and the research side. So there's actually been a fair amount of work done not just in Ukraine, but in the broader East European region by various media in terms of, you know, sifting through big amounts of data and uncovering stories and things like that. In terms of the applications of AI specifically to combat and um, sort of hostile environments, I have to admit that I haven't run into them so far for journalism, just for journalism by itself. But what I will say is that when I look at the government infrastructure right now and sort of what else is happening in society, it's really interesting to see how sort of digitally resilient the country is. So, you know, you'd have to fact check it, but I just saw that apparently the uh, delivery apps in Kiev, uh, when there's an air raid, they sort of put orders on pause so that people can go to shelters. And, you know, there's a lot of you know, that isn't really an application of AI in the classic sense, but but it isn't a higher degree of automation than what you would usually see. And I think right now, you know, Ukraine's government, like the e-government is, is relatively advanced even compared to, you know, the standard European government. And I think that certainly is making a difference in the country fighting back. We've been following reports that Elon Musk um, and Tesla have been promising to send in Starlinks, and they, they can be really effective in providing really strong internet, but just for limited areas. So I'm wondering if the Starlinks have arrived in Ukraine and, and if they are making any kind of impact as far as, as you're aware. So I, I can't really speak to the Starlink infrastructure. What I can say is that, you know, this was the kind of story, because you know, we're looking at an invasion in 2022. This was the kind of story that cheered up a lot of people. Um, I think it was very on brand, both for Musk and for um, and for the Ukrainian government to move in this kind of direction. Uh, and what I can definitely say is, in my conversations with colleagues in uh, in Ukraine, their internet is surprisingly resilient, given with everything that is happening around them. I don't know if that's Elon's magic work that that is happening there, but um, certainly, you know, the social effect was legitimate and, you know, the IT, sort of the web system sort of infrastructure seems to be holding up. So, uh, you know, if that's Starlink, then great job. So about your crowdfunding campaign, how much money have you raised so far and what are those funds going to be used for? So far, we've raised actually 
close to, well, maybe even a little bit in excess of uh, $3 million, primarily on GoFundMe. Um, but we've also received uh, quite a bit of don- direct donations. You know, we're working with a lot of people who have committed resources and sort of aligning with them. So if we take into account those commitments, um, we're actually, you know, probably even closer to four, which is great because if we want to sustain sort of the biggest media in Ukraine for at least a year, you know, that's that's going to require a lot of resources. I think there's really two stories here or maybe three one, which is just one crowdfunding, was very directly targeting the Kiev Independent. Right now, I think the Kiev Independent has a special role just because of the sort of the visibility and the role that it's playing in terms of keeping the world informed about what's happening in Ukraine and being the voice of Ukraine. You know, we're having quite active discussions about what we can do in that direction. Later this week, we're going to have a, um, you know, a call with Agnieszka Holland and James Norton, who... Uh, directed and and starred in the film um, Mr. Jones about the Ukrainian Holodomor. Uh, We want to tell people about the the history, the culture of Ukraine, um, about things beyond the war, right? Because I think it's really important that the world learns about Ukraine more than sort of just the tragedy that is unfolding before our eyes. The second part of the crowdfunding is, I would say, more targeting the media sector in general. And there it's really... Look, we we want to keep Ukrainian culture and media alive. And I think keeping those media working and operating over the next 6 to 12 months is going to be incredibly challenging. It will be quite costly, but it is important. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, there's there's so many cases where Russia has tried to destroy Ukrainian culture so that it could absorb Ukraine into to itself something that Putin has referred to a lot. Um, and, you know, when he talks about one people, that is sort of the, the driving idea there. You know, we can't let that happen again. In the late 20s and 30s, there was a phenomenon where Ukrainian authors, poets, um, artists were all executed by the Soviet regime. It was called the Executed Renaissance, where basically a whole generation of intellectuals was wiped out. One of their hubs, their rallying places in Kharkiv, was being shelled by Russian forces just this week. So that story is coming back, and we need to make sure that we can protect Ukrainian culture, just as the armed forces and the people protect Ukraine um, physically and the country and, and, and all of that. And in terms of protecting Ukrainian culture, is there any kind of futuristic AI tool that you could imagine, that you could dream about, that you would like to see exist? And if so, what would it be? Uh, I think I think that would be really great. And I think Ukraine has a lot of untapped tech talent and mathematical talent, engineering talent. It is a very sort of tech-savvy country. I would say that if I could dream futuristically, I would love to see Ukraine building tools for the world because I think that's something that they naturally are great at doing. You know, if you have your spelling checked by Grammarly, you know, that's an idea that comes from Ukraine, just to name one of one of many. If I had one aspiration, I would say that because Ukrainian is a smaller language and smaller languages are harder to work with in AI just because of the shared data, the the quantity of data points. 
what I would love to do, what I would love to see is I would love to see automated text generation and editing because that would help our journalists do a lot more, you know, quicker in Ukrainian. And I think that's something that can be done. I think it's just there hasn't been enough investment in that yet. Um, but hopefully that will happen soon. Is there a special message to the world and to the people of Ukraine that you'd like to share with us today? You know, today is the uh, birthday of Taras Shevchenko, the most famous Ukrainian poet, who said, Boritis uh, poborite, fight and you will win. And, and I think that's what I, will, I would say to them. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to get to know you more and to hear about your work. And this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.